Welcome to Behind the Curtain, behavioral health like you've never heard before. Today I'm so pleased to be joined by Amy Dunkel. Amy Dunkel started the Solace Foundation of Orange County that passes out naloxone to the most vulnerable populations in Southern California. She did this after her son died of a heroin overdose. Amy is one of the most remarkable human beings I've ever met and I'm so pleased to be joined by her today. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Mrs. Amy Dunkel. Will you just give me a little rundown about um, how you ended up mixed up with the addiction treatment industry? The addiction treatment industry? Yeah. Um, well, I lost my 20-year-old son to an overdose straight out of treatment um, when he, in 2012. Um, prior to that, he transitioned from uh, smoking heroin to injecting heroin while in a treatment facility. Uh, he had an overdose in his first sober living home, which the sober living manager failed to recognize as an overdose. Uh, my husband found him at 3 o'clock in the afternoon overdosing on methadone uh, in the sober living. In the sober living, your husband found him? Yes, we couldn't get a hold of Ben, so uh, we drove, Tom drove to the, the uh, sober living home, walked into the house and heard this deep snoring sound coming from the room that my son was sleeping in. And um, my husband didn't actually recognize the signs and symptoms either, to be honest. And the, uh, the sober living manager said to my husband, uh, oh, we've been worried about Ben, we're gonna give you a call. It was three o'clock in the afternoon. This was an overdose on methadone, so it was it had been going on for a considerable period of time. Okay. He'd just been lying in bed all day, and by the time we got him to the hospital, his oxygen levels were dangerously low. I mean, he was dying. Jesus. So they did were unable to recognize the signs. Or be concerned that a client was in bed at three o'clock in the afternoon in a sober living home, snoring so deeply. Wow. So where'd you guys take him? Um, I took him to a Kaiser hospital and, you know, my, it was actually our youngest son, so it was his um, prom night, so I, was at, I wasn't around. My husband brought him home, put him to bed. He didn't know what was going on. I walked into the house immediately and I could tell by the breathing that Ben was in danger. Um, wow. So then he went to Kaiser hospital. Okay. What did, how did they treat him? You know, it was the first time I heard the word Narcan mentioned because uh, he, he, he obviously they realized as soon as he was in the ER that he had to be immediately put into a room. Um, they put the pulse ox on his finger um, and the uh, ER physician shouted, get the Narcan ready. Wow. They didn't actually use the Narcan, which I thought was interesting. Um, they just had it ready to go. So if, if he was to become unresponsive, they would have given it to him. So this was the first time you'd actually heard Narcan? First time I heard Narcan. What is Narcan? It's an opiate antagonist. It, it is for use in an opiate overdose, so for pain pills or for heroin. Okay. So it will, it's essentially a, a life-saving tool. It is. It is. If somebody's overdosing on an opioid, you give them Narcan, it goes in, it knocks opiates off the receptors, and then it binds to those receptors for about 20 to 90 minutes. So it gets them breathing again. Um, and it protects them from whatever opioid they have in their body while the naloxone is sitting on those receptors. Then the Narcan leaves the receptors and the opioids reattach. What happened to Ben after the Kaiser Hospital? After the Kaiser, 
Kaiser Hospital, um, that was between the treatment center he went to and transitioned to an IV drug user, then the sober living, then um, he went into another outpatient program. He was discharged from there. You know, he had a relationship with a girl there. And, and so they, okay, so, so he was, a young man had a relationship with a girl and they... Where he transitioned to IV drug use. Then he was basically thrown out. Um, he hooked up with the girl and they lived in a hotel. We couldn't get him to come home. I mean, okay. now he was with this girl and um, she understood him, you know. Of in, she She actually got him. The IV drug use, she was probably the one. Um, so, I mean, it is mo he was just full of self-loathing. He hated himself. He hated that he was addicted to heroin. He now transitioned to IV drug use. He had met somebody who was an IV drug user. Um, and I guess he was so lost, he didn't know where, he was so disgusted in himself. He couldn't even come home, so he shacked up with her for a while. Um, and then he wanted to go into a, a, a sober living near her in Huntington Beach. So there was very little we could do. I mean, we were just desperate to keep him alive. Yeah. Um, so we put him into a sober living home in Huntington Beach. And while he was there, he relapsed. So he was thrown out one night. Um, were you guys called? No. And he didn't have a phone charged. I mean, typically, you know, they're thrown out at night. So he was kicked out of one facility for hooking up with a girl. He was thrown out of another one. No, he wasn't thrown out. We found him overdosing in the next sober living, right? Okay. So we took him out of that one. Then he went into a sober living home in Huntington Beach. Okay. okay. And um, so sober living home from one sober living home to another sober living home, and he's thrown out because he's relapsing. Right. So we're dealing with a chronic recurring disorder of brain structure and function. He relapses and he ends up thrown out at night. Such a vulnerable young man. Um, he makes his way down to his girlfriend's sober living, couldn't get in there. So he rolled in, rolled himself up in a ball and slept there. And at some point, he must have been picked up by law enforcement. Um, the second time this happened, he was thrown out again at night um, and he must have thrown up or something um, and he went into one of the surfing short stores the next morning, nine o'clock in the morning, put on a shirt and walked out with the shirt and that's how he got to the criminal justice system, you know, for stealing a $26 shirt, walking out with the shirt on because he had thrown up and he had no clothes, he had no phone, he had no... So now a boy who needs treatment for his mental health issues is now in the judicial system. Yeah, and then it, it gets worse because um, another time when he couldn't get into a sober living home, he, he went down to the beach and he was drinking with some other homeless people um, and he must have passed out in a parking lot. And I know this because I got the report back from Hoke Hospital. Um, so they, they, the, the cops come because he's passed out and they give him a choice. You want to go to jail or go to hospital? So Ben says, I want to go to hospital. And um, the reports from the hospital, he was tied to the bed and there were security guards on the door. Um, and I guess at some point he must have gotten confused and didn't know where the bathroom was. And, you know, it just goes into all these details. And they, they, they must have got to the point where they had him on a drip. His blood alcohol level must have been at a safer level. So they gave him $10 and send him back down to, to you know, the Huntington Beach. Did you ever find anyone in the addiction treatment industry, law enforcement, the sober living homes that were actually really working or willing to help 
you guys, your family, your son? Oh, just long enough to get him in there, to get the money. So everybody's helpful in the beginning. Well, not, yeah, to, they just want, they want, you know. To close the deal. Close the deal, yeah. And then no, we'll, there was nobody to turn to, and I mean, you know, counselors, his counselors would preach the tough laugh, you know, call 911, throw him out, you know, all this. Um, and, you know, you just, your head is swimming because you love this person with every ounce of your being. And you know that the gut instinct for a mother is to protect her child and to do anything to make them well. And then he told, you know, you're doing it all wrong. You know, you, you love it, you're, you're enabling him. You're the problem. You know, you have to get tough, you have to throw him out, you have to call 911. And then you look a bit deeper and you realize that, you know, anybody who's gonna get the help is in the criminal justice system. So, you know, it's like, part of what they're saying is true. Get them a record and then they'll qualify for, you know, beds. It's like, if you don't have a record, you don't get the help. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, that's absolute factual. And what I see now, years on, is that it's, you know, the parents who have the money to get the attorney for their kids, yep. right? And the kids, they, they get the county beds, they go into the system, they relapse, they go to jail, they come out of jail, back into a county bed. And they're just taking up the beds of the people who really need them because they have these attorneys who know all the secret, you know, ways of, of bypassing the system. Very, it's very all totally broken. So um, Ben's now in the criminal justice system. You know, misdemeanor's big bloody deal. But our aim was to get him out of this country. And we were told that we couldn't get him out of the country because he had a... We couldn't get him out of this California because he had a misdemeanor. Because he had a misdemeanor for stealing a shirt. Stay warm. Uh, yeah, and being found intoxicated. And being found intoxicated. Um, so what... So then, yeah. you know, I can't go into too many of the details that followed next, but he spent the last 54 days of his life in a treatment facility. Uh, 54 days in, he had a bad day and walked out with a group of others. Uh, he managed to make his way to close to our home, met up with a friend. So there were three of there were four of them in the car. One is friend from high school, we introduced him to heroin in the first place. Another guy from the treatment center and this guy's girlfriend and um, they used and Ben obviously his tolerance was probably zero. It was zero because he was also on oral naltrexone, which is a huge thing. Here in Orange County you get your clients on oral naltrexone or you get them virtual shots. So he's on oral naltrexone, uh, he was able to override the blockade, and, um, and I'm sure that played a role in his fatal overdose. So the three people he was with, uh, after they used, they drove to a bank. Um, I don't know what they, I don't know what they, where, what they were cashing, they were cashing a check. I don't know if that was a check from a Ben's check, because I know that somewhere along the line he was able to get his surfboard and wetsuit from the facility he spent his last days in. When they got to the bank, by the time they got to the bank, Ben was already, what they, they described to me, the death rattle. He was already, you know, gasping for life. Um, but they locked him in the car, went to the bank, got some money. Then when they came back to the car, he was purple. Um, and instead of calling 911, they removed him from the car and all evidence of him from the car. Okay, so his friends went in and left him in there and he came back, he was purple, and they removed him from the car. And as they were dragging him from the car, another friend of Ben's from high school who was totally 
unconnected to this, he just happened to be coming out of the bank, saw the commotion, recognised one of the kids who was dragging Ben, uh, ran over, he, he started mouth to mouth, and a nurse came along and started chest compressions. But because he'd been left so long without oxygen, uh, you know, his heart had stopped, so they had to get his heart beating. And when paramedics did get there, they gave him two shots of Narcan. Um, he was transported to Mission Hospital, critical condition. Uh, his heart had stopped, so obviously there were signs that he'd suffered from a heart attack. Um, he was uh, put on life support, and he, um, you know, there was hope at first that he might recover. His body was cooled down. Uh, but then he developed sepsis and he developed uh, MRSA, he was, test he, his, he was cultured for MRSA in his lungs. Um, and Ben had actually had MRSA in his knee, you know, just weeks before and hadn't completed the course of antibiotic. And I don't know if there's any connection between the two, but, you know, I do see this, that people who have had an abscess before, who have had cellulitis before, who have had MRSA before, um, they seem to be more prone to getting it back. So yeah. he, uh, so then in the ICU, not only did he have a brain injury, it was called locked-in syndrome, so he couldn't speak, he couldn't see, he couldn't talk, but when we spoke to him, he would cry. So, you know, to some, at some levels he was aware. Uh, so then we had sepsis and MRSA, so at that point, in the intensive care unit, we had to wear gloves and a mask and a, and a gown to be in the same room as him. And then he started to have terrible seizures. I mean, just unbelievably horrific seizures. Um, so just another blow. And then it was very apparent that the prognosis was very poor. They kept doing MRIs. And they said that the chances of Ben recovering and being Ben were just impossible. You know, it was impossible. So I spent the last night with him on the 17th of October. In, with a gown on and with a mask over my face and gloves. And I knew I had to take him off life support the next day. I mean, I just couldn't subject to him, subject him to it any longer. So the next morning I went home and spoke to my husband and son. And the hospital had been worried because Tom and my husband and son had both been saying, you know, we'll have him anyway. We just don't want to lose him. We'll keep him any way we can. And I thought I was going to have to persuade them otherwise. But when I got home, I think my husband had said, you know, we can't put him through this. It was agony. It was absolutely agonizing to watch. So, um, you know, we went to the hospital, met with the doctors. They'd done another uh, brain scan, and it was pretty devastating. So we arranged for a priest to come in and give him last rites. He was taken off life support. And when we went into the room, all the, all the tubes had been removed, and he was given last rites. And still we're in masks. I mean, he's still, you know, highly infectious. and. Over a period of six hours, he died. Um, he was given morphine and, and benzos as comfort meds. And about 10 minutes before he died, I just held him and said, you know, beautiful things are gonna happen. And then he died 10 minutes later. But 10 minutes before, we actually got a call from the infectious disease doctor. And, and he was saying that for the last 10 minutes, we could hold him without gloves. We could take our masks off, so, you know, just an act of compassion that we could actually touch him in those final moments. And then at uh, 3.15, he just, he, he just died. And my husband just screamed. You know, there's just no way you can prepare yourself for it. 
And then, you know, you have your 20-year-old child lying dead on the bed. You know, how do you leave him? How do you say goodbye? What do you do? And somehow you have to find a way of just leaving that hospital room and leaving the hospital and leaving your child behind. And it was, a, it was the worst death you can imagine. Just, just anything that could go wrong just totally went wrong for Ben, you know, from the brain injury to sepsis to MRSA to these horrific uh, seizures. And then you walk out and it's a beautiful night sky and the world is normal and, and life goes on. <clears throat> and he was failed on at every level. Not from his family. No, but then we're left to feel that we failed, of course. I know. I can only imagine. Because then all, you know, you do a post-mortem forever. Yeah. Like, what could we have done differently? To people that have lost a loved one, you never, you never stop asking yourself what you could have done differently, especially in a tragedy like that. No, it just never leaves you. And that, you said something to me about your husband's scream, and it made me he emotional. And I, I remember when my parents lost my older brother and the scream that my mom, I'll, I'll never forget that yell and that tone. And, yeah. Uh, and then to see my 17-year-old son just lying next to the bed holding his brother. Hold, held him for six hours. What is the work you do? Uh, just, you know, going around training people in naloxone, training treatment facilities, but most importantly just reaching people, treating them like human beings when nobody else does, so working with people on the streets who use drugs, um, getting to know them, getting to train them, giving them this ability to save another's life. Um, One thing that struck me when I saw you that Saturday down at the uh, Santa Ana Civic Center was you knew every single kid down there and the connection that you had with them, you, you were a mom to every one of those children. And, and some of them not so young. Some I, of them almost my age. You're totally right, but they still need a mom. They still need connection. Yeah. That's what comes up many times, you know, when somebody I haven't seen for a while um, sees me and they say, you know, you saved me. And it's like, well, how many times were you Narcan? And I say, it's nothing to do with the Narcan. You just loved me when nobody else could or would. So a connection is absolutely huge. And this is why, you know, when you close down a, a, a needle exchange, when you clear a riverbed, you clear a community, you clear all the connection, the contacts that they have, this, and you isolate them. This is also why telling people the old antiquated theory of tough love, it's, it's not working because this is a connection problem. I know. And so we're, we're treating people who already feel isolated, already feel different. They hate themselves. By, so you just, yeah. By, by telling them, get better or don't come around us anymore. And that's not effective. No. I spoke to a young man, his mother hadn't spoken to him for two years. And it's treating it as a moral failing, you know. It's, I mean, we know it, it's a chronic recurring disorder of the brain. And yet we punish people constantly. We lock them up. We... The, the last few months of Ben's life, he was in a facility. Um, did he get anything out of that? No. We just discussed about the isolation and how 
people come to you in the streets and say to you, you saved my life, and you immediately think it was because of that naloxone you handed out, but a lot of it has to do with the fact that you look them in the eye and let them feel love, even for that one minute, that one second, that connection. Yeah, uh, yeah. but it's not just for one minute, because they keep coming back, you know, and it, and it grows. I mean, I have this guy who I absolutely adore, who's still living in a tent at the Civic Center, um, and he wrote to me from jail. I never actually got the letter because uh, he gave it to a friend who was supposed to give it to me. Um, but I, you know, you just develop these relationships that would never ever have happened otherwise. Mm. I mean, he cares deeply about me, and I care deeply about him, and I would do anything to help him. But there is absolutely nothing I can do to help him um, because there's not a system in place. So this is probably somewhere where we can start is figuring out I, I, what, what are the solutions to these problems? What can we do? I think the first solution is evidence-based treatment. I mean, you know, putting people into detox, putting them into a rehab, then it's just this revolving door that fuels a billion dollar industry. Um, you know, I think we've got to have far greater access to uh, medication-assisted treatment, and I don't mean naltrexone, I mean uh, buprenorphine and methadone. And then with those, some, you know, some care, some behavioral health, some structure, some help. What can we do to support these people, myself, all of us that are in this world? What can we do considering that the system is so broke? What are some steps that we can take? For instance, you first just have me carry reduction. something. So first of all, you do harm reduction. What do you mean? Okay. What's harm reduction? So you meet them where they are the at without judgment. So if they're using drugs, you know, you teach them to stay well while they're using drugs. And then while you're doing that, you're establishing trust for one thing. So you provide them with, you know, clean needles. You provide them with sterile supplies. It's not just needles. I mean, it's very important that their cooker is clean. It's very important that they use sterile water, that they use clean cottons. Um, what about the people that say to you that's just going to encourage? They're going to use anyway. And if you fail to give them sterile supplies, um, they're going to share needles. We're going to... Uh, make the HIV hepatitis C issue even worse. We're, they're going to. We're seeing this, right? Yeah. Okay. So Orange County, we shut down the needle exchange. What happens? Do people stop using needles? Mm. Hell no. Uh, they just share needles, reuse needles. Um, one of the young men who walked up out of treatment with Ben in 2012, he had been living at the Civic Center for two years. I, I'd seen him regularly, and when the needle exchange shut, he developed an abscess. So when he finally did get medical care, he had uh, developed sepsis, endocarditis, and he had, I believe, an um, abscess in his brain. So now he has a pacemaker. So that's a really good point. They're going to use anyway. They're going to use anyway. And so supplying so, them, supply harm reduction, supplying them with clean um, supplies, education, while creating a connection. Yeah. Okay. And then, you know, over time, in that safe place, we also have hepatitis C, HIV testing. So this is another huge thing because a lot of people who inject drugs are fearful that they have HIV or hepatitis C. So if you have them tested right there, you know, with, with the needle exchange, with the naloxone, and tested for HIV, hepatitis C, that actually can change the way they use drugs. Um, I mean, I've stood there while people I know well have gone to get their tests and they come back and they stand with me waiting for the results. And when they get their test results and, and, and it's negative, 
mostly they're worried about HIV. They should be more worried about hepatitis C, by the way. You know, mm. They just don't understand that uh, they should be very worried about that. And then that can change. But you're saying that you'll actually see someone get a re sense of relief and then oh, a, yes. a purpose, a new oh, purpose totally. in life. The guy that I absolutely adore at the Civic Center, that was a life-changing moment for him. Wow. Um, so getting that information. He, he, he literally, he, he opened up the paper and shared it with me. And he said, it's like I got my life back. And it was an incredibly emotional moment. Um, and I really had hope for him. And then he left the needle exchange. And during the course of that week, he was arrested and into the criminal justice system. And that moment, that incredibly magical moment where he felt that, you know, his life was about to turn around. I mean, you know, he's just so excited. Um, he was arrested in the criminal justice system. Now he's got all these charges against him. And it's just It's a, a revolving door yeah. that most of us don't have the money to get out of. Well, not, no, no, he certainly doesn't. So how do we get our hands on naloxone? Uh, well, naloxone is available for anybody. It is still a prescription medication. I mean, hopefully we'll get to the point where it will be over the counter. We lost 64,000 Americans to overdose in 2016. 64,000 Americans 64, to overdose. To overdose, um, 175 a day, and I think it's 145 of those were to opioids. 145 people every single day. And this drug has been around for 50 years, 50 years, five zero. Um, used in a clinical set setting for much of that time, used on newborn babies, so it's incredibly safe. Okay. And it's still a prescription medication that for some is very difficult to access. Makes no sense, does it? No. Um, we, we do have a law, and I, I think it's, I, I can't actually remember, but it's 1535, I think, that it would allow you to go into a pharmacist and the pharmacist could furnish you with naloxone without a prescription. Um, they could run it through your insurance or you could buy the naloxone. So it's not really over the counter, but you can, if a pharmacist carries, carries it, you can go in and get it without a prescription. If you don't have the means, you can come and get it from us and be trained and, and given the naloxone. The Civic Center in downtown Santa, Santa Ana? Yes. Come down Last and be trained by, yeah. by who exactly? By me and my volunteers. And what is your organization's name? It's called the Solace Foundation. Solace of Foundation County, of yes. Orange County. Yeah. And it's a 501c3. Okay, all right. And they can find you online? Yes. Solace Foundation of OC, is that what it is? Yeah. Okay. Um, before you go, Amy, tell us what fentanyl is and what it's do currently doing to our... So fentanyl has changed everything, and I've seen a huge change since December. Uh, fentanyl is a synthetic opioid, so it's made, manufactured in a laboratory. So the difference between... Um, Heroin, say, is heroin revolves around a growing season. Hmm. The poppies are grown, they're harvested, it takes a lot of manpower to uh, harvest. Fentanyl is entirely artificial, it's made in a laboratory, it doesn't rely on any growing season, you don't need all those people to produce it. Uh, it is cheaper and it is easy to smuggle into the country. It's 50 times more powerful than heroin. 50? 5 zero. Five zero. Um, more powerful than heroin. And super labs in China, I'm assuming, are producing it and sending it over. Them. I've spoken to people who've had actually shipped to addresses up in Los Angeles. Does fentanyl respond to Oh, yes, it does. Okay. It absolutely does. Okay. Um, so the overdoses with fentanyl are, in my experience, different. I mean, I've, ex I've, I've uh, used naloxone on 
somebody who's overdosed on heroin, and I've used naloxone on somebody who's overdosed on fentanyl, and completely different overdoses. Um, the heroin, you know, it was just, he was overdosing over time. He was found, he was, his, he was still breathing, but there were gaps between his breathing. He was, um, his color was good by the time I got to him. He was drooling and he was unresponsive. He was dying, um, but he'd been sitting there for a while. So with a, with a heroin overdose, it can happen over a period of time. This was something that's a person that you encountered? This was a, the person that I encountered. And tell us what happened. Um, so when I determined he was unresponsive, um, he was still breathing, I gave him a shot of Narcan and it, it didn't do anything. So we waited, you know, waited two minutes and um, he didn't need rescue breathing, but we gave him a second shot and he just slowly woke up and wow. started talking to me. He was kind of shocked to see me there. Have you seen him since? He came back the following week and um, just came and hugged me and he said, I didn't really believe I was overdosing, but my friend said I was actually, you know, I was, I was totally gone. Um, and then he came back again with a rose from his mother another week and said that, you know, my mother wants to meet you and thank you. Um, unfortunately, he came back to the needle exchange and I know that, you know, he did relapse. I don't know where he is now. So that was a, a heroin overdose combined with benzodiazepines. As I was called to two other overdoses, one on the riverbed and another one at the Civic Centre. Um, I was there more to uh, make sure that they had enough naloxone and to instruct on mouth-to-mouth. -mouth. Uh, the person had already been given the naloxone in both cases, uh, and the naloxone takes a little while to kick in, so you just instruct them on mouth-to-mouth -mouth until the naloxone kicked in. And then this last one was three weeks ago, and it was a young man who had used something called China White. Yeah. Uh -huh. And it was uh, what he called a rinse shot. So he was, it wasn't, um, it was actually just uh, somebody had used it, the, the cooker and the cotton had been previously used. They put a little bit of water and that's what he was injected with. Trying to get the residue to get high it off of the it. residue. Yeah. Um, and he collapsed immediately. He walked just down this little ramp and collapsed. And I ran straight over to him and he was blue, totally blue by the time I got to him. His eyes were wide open, but all I could see was the whites. His eyes were in the back of his head. And he was, you know, his chest, his, his upper body, just there was a stiffness to it, which I hadn't encountered before. Um, and so there was a, a, a homeless gentleman who was there, and I asked him to give mouth-to-mouth -mouth while I got the Narcan out of my backpack. I always carry it on my back the whole time when I'm down there, because you just never know. Uh, and I gave him a, a, a dose of Narcan up his nose, and. You know, it, 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 the guy was trying to give him mouth to mouth, but it, I don't think it was actually being effective. Um, so it took a second dose, and on the second dose, he he woke up. He, he his color improved, um, but he still wasn't taking a breath. So I literally I grabbed him and I sat him up and I just said, "You've got to breathe, you've got mm. to breathe." And it was almost like what happened was. Obviously, the naloxone took full effect. It softened everything, you know, in his, his chest and everything. And he just started to breathe at that point. Um, but I'd never experienced anything quite like that. And when, after that, I asked him, you know, um, he, he told me it was the China White. And what I think is happening, because I've had a number of reports like this, and um, with the rinse shots, it's, they're, they're, they're obviously drawing through the cotton. And I'm assuming that fentanyl is involved and there's obviously a little pocket of fentanyl. If three people could have used the China White and they were fine, I mean, obviously they might have had higher tolerance. Um, but then we're seeing these rinse shots where people turn blue immediately. So what I can only think of is that maybe there's some fentanyl 
yeah. and it was popular just fentanyl in the in the cotton. Pure and fentanyl. He just got, or something. Yeah, because um, he, he he's an he's been an active drug user for a long time and had high tolerance. So for him to turn blue straight away, it was something different. Wow. One thing that just strikes me about you that's so amazing is that you're not just someone that's out that's going and talking and doing speaking engagements, but you're out there in that's the streets. That's, that's what I That's what you to do. do. Saving lives every day and uh, or giving people the tools. I mean, I give people the tools so they can save lives. I mean, when you put naloxone into the hands of people who use drugs, you're they right. save lives. You're right. You're and right. And then that empowers them. You know, it's it's an incredible moment when somebody is there and you have their life in your hands and you can actually make a difference. And hmm. For me, it, it's, you know, having lost my son that way, to have literally had the opportunity to use naloxone on two young males. Beautiful thing. It is a beautiful thing. It's traumatic too, don't get me wrong. And I, you know, the people who make, do the reversals, I know exactly what the trauma's like. You know, we try and instruct them to wait two minutes, three minutes between doses. And, you know, I know that every one of them carry trauma to each overdose. Many of them have lost loved ones, they've lost friends. Um, and when they, when they find somebody blue, you know, having them wait for a couple of minutes, um, it, it's hard. Uh, oh, I can imagine. I can imagine. Yeah, so we all bring our trauma to these events. I mean, when I run to an overdose, I, my legs are like jelly. And all I want to do is throw up because, you know. Obviously, it taps into my trauma. Well, and just to piggyback on what Evan said to you the other day, there's people that, when they relive their trauma or have a trauma experience happen, they crumble. And then there's people that run into the fire. And well, I think at first it's the adrenaline. You know, you just got to do it. You got to do what you got to do. Uh, and then afterwards, this last one was really shocking. Uh, just the way he looked when I found him. I can imagine, and then that's got to be reactivating for you. It your... is, because I know, you know, they described what what Ben looked like when they found him in that car, and, and so I'm seeing what how Ben was. I'm so sorry. For yet your I loss. have the tools. I have the tools to save them when I find them, and I'm sure that if those three people that were with Ben had had the tools, you're right. They wouldn't have hesitated. I mean, you you're know, right. yeah. You're right. Um, a best so, friend of mine died in a sober living home from a heroin overdose. Got a kid I grew up with, and uh, they dragged him out of the sober living home because they didn't want him to die there. And so he slowly died after a few days in the in the woods across the sober living home by himself up north. So if we have naloxone in every sober living home, if we have naloxone in every single treatment center, if people who use drugs have naloxone, You're right. uh, you know, the truth is with fentanyl, what we're seeing certainly in San Diego, and it's going to be up here too, is um, because of fentanyl, everybody's frightened, obviously, so um, the laws are gradually changing. So if somebody provides the drug that another person dies from and it contains fentanyl um, or somebody injects somebody with that substance that kills them uh, then they're being charged with manslaughter and that means that people are going to be far less likely to call 911. So we have a far more potent uh, substance out there and we're going to enhance the laws which will make people um, l less reluctant to call for help. Great. So just far more are going to die. I mean, it's like the perfect storm. It's a perfect storm in Orange County. You know, you shut down a needle exchange. Um, you 
make it more difficult for people to get their hands on naloxone because that's where they would all come to the needle exchange and that's where I'd be. Now our numbers are way down. I mean, we see maybe 20, 25 people each week yeah. versus over 100 before. Um, so le lack of access to clean needles, lack of access to naloxone and um, this frightening substance, fentanyl. Uh, and, and laws that are changing that will make people less likely to call 911. And if, is it 64,000 people dying in 2016 wasn't enough? We've seen nothing yet. And we won't find out for two years because, you know, notoriously we don't find out the, 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 um, the, data. the data from the CDC until two years after the event. So. Of course. Okay. Um, what can, if we want to help by getting more information, by volunteering or by donating, to the Solace Foundation of OC, how do we go about doing that? Uh, it can be done online. Okay. Uh, if a donation can be made online, and we all volunteer our time. None of us get paid a salary, uh, and the money goes to providing naloxone uh, or other supplies that people need. We're now handing out fentanyl test strips, um, which is huge because, you know, obviously uh, people aren't going to stop using. You know, and, and if they have something that contains fentanyl, they're going to use it anyway, but we want to show them what's in the substance, test it, see if it has fentanyl in. If it has fentanyl in it, we can instruct them, you know, they're aware, and we, we would instruct them to go slow, we'd instruct them to use in a group, but stagger the use, so not everybody's using it at the same time, so there's always somebody there to save them, make sure they have naloxone. Uh, again, it's just education, you know. So I encourage everyone listening to this podcast to show Amy support and um, make a difference and go online, go to the Solace Foundation of OC.org, donate, contact Amy, contact the folks at the Solace Foundation of OC and go volunteer and um, make a difference. Thank you so much, Amy. Thank you. I appreciate you being here. Seriously. Pacific Solstice provides mental health and addiction treatment services. With a working professionals program that customizes its treatment plans and a young adults program that specializes in working with millennials and Gen Zs, helping them launch. For more information, go to pacificsolstice.com or call 949-200-7929. That's 949-200-7929. Strength and Support is a 501c3 nonprofit that provides low-cost or free mental health services to the military community here in Orange County and Los Angeles. It's real. It's raw. It's behind the curtain.